From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. How many of you who are going to be doctors are willing to spend your days in Ghana? On your willingness to contribute part of your life, I think will depend the answer whether a free society can compete. Those are the words of then-Senator John F. Kennedy delivered in a 2 a.m. impromptu speech at the University of Michigan. It was October 14, 1960, during his presidential campaign, when Kennedy articulated his idea for a Peace Corps. Just five months later, President Kennedy signed an executive order turning that vision into reality. The mission of the Peace Corps is clear and simple, to promote world peace and friendship by providing developing countries with skilled workers who will assist with projects defined by the host country. Today, Peace Corps volunteers serve in 58 countries and upon returning, often call the experience life-changing. Regardless of country assignment or even the nature of the job, people often find the lessons they learn, the way their thinking changes, and even the challenges they face are similar. The people we'll meet today served in the Peace Corps in Ukraine, Tonga, Namibia, and Armenia. Susan Prentice knew she wanted to travel after retiring from her paralegal career in 2010. She'd already trained hundreds of people on fundraising walks for breast cancer, so she understood the rewards of volunteerism. But she wanted to challenge herself. After signing up with the Peace Corps, She landed in a small village in Armenia, teaching English from 2010 to 2012. Susan Prentice, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's a privilege to be here. It's good to have you with us. Now, what was it about the Peace Corps that you felt, I think when we spoke, you used the phrase, outside your comfort zone? You know, it was a chance to do something really, really different. I had traveled quite a bit, you know, previously, but I had never done anything quite like this. And putting myself into a country where I did not know the language, I could not speak the language, I did not understand the country. When I first heard I was going to Armenia, I didn't even know where it was. (laughs) And so I had to find out where it was and, and then go through the three months of training after that. So it was something. The three months of training, every Peace Corps volunteer undergoes this at first. Mm -hmm. Does that happen in the host country, the country where you're traveling? It does. When we um, got our assignment, we went to Washington, D.C. for three days of pre-service orientation. And then we all, 54 of us, got on an airplane and flew to Armenia and stayed in a resort for a couple of days, learning a few of the basics, and then we went to our host families for pre-service training, and we lived with them for three months. You did not want to go to Africa or China. You had you did have some absolutes, which people joining the Peace Corps are allowed to, to vocalize. Yes, you're, so, you're allowed to have a preference, but you have to be very careful in doing that. I didn't want to go to Africa because they have bugs and snakes and things like that that I didn't want to be around. And I just felt that China wouldn't be that much of a challenge. I wanted to go somewhere that was much different than that. And Armenia was just the perfect place for me. What was the host family like? Oh, my goodness. Uh, The host family uh, was very well connected in the town that I lived in. It was 
the population of our village was a thousand people. So it was really small. And there were four other volunteers in that village. So we met every morning for, you know, in-service language classes. And then we would spend the afternoons with the host family. My host family was, the father was the brother of the mayor of the village. The mom was a homemaker. There were three children, you know, two girls and one boy. And, you know, I mean, they raised all their own food, their vegetables, their their meat, their chicken. Uh, everything was done at the home by the mother. It was really a very traditional family. Were they wealthier by Armenian village standards? You know, it, they were probably better off than a lot of people. I mean, they had running water most of the time. They had electricity. They had, you know, uh, phones and and that sort of thing, but um, I would not say that they were particularly well off, and maybe by that village's standards, but not by a lot of people who lived in that village. Now, when we first spoke, every time I asked you a question about what the experience meant to you and and why you did it, when you first when we first started talking, you said I did it because I wanted to travel, but that wasn't. I mean, that was an element, but it was so much deeper than that for you because you would you would answer me with sort of a, an exhale, like a, ooh, this was profound. How do I put it into words? Kind of a, an expression. What, what did the experience mean to you? You know, I want to go back to what you started with when you read the words of uh, John F. Kennedy. And hearing those words again now, it is just so emotional for me because – like I said, this was something that was way out of my comfort zone, and I didn't know if, if I was going to be able to do it. I didn't know if I was going to be able to really make a difference. But the experience that I had getting to know the people in, in the village where I wound up living, to, to getting to know my counterparts, the English teachers, and most importantly, the students, because I taught kids from third grade all the way up to 12th grade, and seeing the eyes light up on those children when they could learn an English word and say it back to me. I mean, still right now, I think of this one little boy named Sergei, and the, the only words he knew for, for a while were, hello. And then he would say, hello, Miss Susan. And I would walk him down the hall, and he would jump out, hello, Miss Susan. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was heartwarming. It's heartwarming. What do you think you did for those kids. Have you? Do you know where any of them are now? I know where a lot of them are, and the thing that I that I did that made a difference. Let me ask, tell you what one of the biggest questions was that I asked was I was asked by the people, why would you leave a comfortable life in America to come to a poor place like Armenia? And my answer always was so that I could make a difference in your life. That was always my answer, and so for the girls. Who's, who were facing, you know, marriage and, and babies, I said, you know, there's, there's something more out there that you can do. And they were, by the time they're in high school, by the time they're teenagers in this village, they're looking for husbands. They're and... looking for husbands. If you're 20 years old and you're not married, there's something wrong with you. And I started encouraging the, the young girls to think about education, think about going to college, think about a career that you would have. 
you know, the men all have to go into the Army, but the women don't. They can go on to college. And I know where I would say most of my students are, and they've, they've all, the women have gone on to get higher education degrees. Some of them are lawyers. Some of them are teachers. Some of them are artists. I mean, it's amazing what they've done. It seems obvious, I know, but can you just talk about why this means so much to you, what it feels like to go to a place where, on the face of it, you're deprived? You don't have all the creature comforts. You don't have all the privacy, and you have to find ways of communicating with people who speak a different language. What is it about helping kids, teaching these kids English, that supersedes all of that in in spades for you? I mean, the, the biggest thing, so let me just back up and explain. I mean, one of the things that I was charged with doing was bringing in new methods of teaching to the school system. And I had one counterpart who was absolutely in favor of that and another who wanted to stick to the straight Soviet method of teaching where the teacher stands up in front, recites the lesson, the students parrot it back, and there's no opportunity for practice. So I brought in experiential learning for those kids so they got a chance to actually use the language and to see them get the ability to do that. That was just so rewarding. And then to have them express how much they appreciated being able to do that was, I can't even describe it. You said that the people in, in this Armenian village use everything. Like mm-hmm. there's there's no waste because they appreciate everything that they have. Yeah. You told me about uh, sitting down with the matriarch of the family and she had a chicken in a bowl and she was cooking you dinner and you... You had a chicken dinner, and then what did she tell you? Well, there was a little story before we had the chicken dinner, and, and I was sitting in the kitchen eating breakfast, and she said, asked me to hand her a knife. And I said, sure, here's a knife. And in, in my Armenian that I didn't really know, but I knew what a knife was. She came back a few minutes later with a chicken in the bowl, and I said, oh, what happened to the chicken? He said, oh, the chicken was very sick. And so we ended up eating that chicken for dinner. They don't waste anything. Um I I felt fine after I ate that dinner, but it was a little bit took you me aback for a had second. Had to think about that a little yeah. bit. So when you came back, you finished your assignment and you walked mm-hmm. into an American grocery store. You had a moment. What happened? I turned around and walked out. Why? It was so overwhelming. I mean, I'm used to going to the green grocer to get green food, to, to the meat store to get meat, to the chicken store to get chicken. You know, you had to go to very few places to get, you had very few options. And to walk into an American grocery store, it took my breath away. I mean, I literally turned around and walked out because it was just, I couldn't do it. It was so overwhelming. And that lasted for a couple of months after I got back. It was like a culture shock because everything was so simple where I'd been living. There weren't that many choices. And it was just, it was just an easier way of living. And coming back here was very confusing for me. Do you have an awkward pooping story? I've heard that this is uh, a, a common thread for returning Peace Corps volunteers, so I just have to ask the very rude and immature question. An awkward pooping? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I try not to think about it. The, <laughs> I felt very grateful that I had a toilet that could flush when we had water. You know, you. So, but I, I went to a lot of villages where all there was was a an outhouse, 
and there was no pit. There was just a pile underneath, and it was, anyway. Susan Prentice, thanks for being game, and thanks so much for sharing your experience with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, the president of a local group of returning volunteers joins us along with her husband, even though their Peace Corps service wasn't together. It's the reason they met and bonded. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Since 1961, the Peace Corps, envisioned and created by President John F. Kennedy, has sent volunteers around the globe to help developing countries. The obvious aim is to meet the goals identified by the host country, not the Americans. But just as important are the relationships that develop from this work, promoting world peace and friendship. A local group, Coastal Carolina Returned Peace Corps Volunteers, recently reemerged to continue a mission of community service and enjoy the unique bond that comes from having served. Shannon Ray Gentry is the current president of the Coastal Carolina Returned Peace Corps Volunteers. She served in Tonga from 2007 to 2009. Shannon Ray Gentry, welcome to Coastline. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good to have you back with us. As it happens, she and her husband, Tom Dorgan, met and bonded because of their Peace Corps experience. Although it wasn't together, he went to Ukraine from 2000 to 2002. And he's also with us today. Welcome, Tom Dorgan. Uh, Hi. Thank you for having us, Rachel. Good to have you with us. Now, just the thought of spending two years in a place where you're the only American, in some cases the only English speaker, would sound like a hard no to a lot of people. So Shannon, why did you decide to sign up? Well, for me, um, I grew up in a rural area in North Carolina, and my family, we didn't travel um, very far outside of the state, if ever, um, and certainly didn't go abroad. And I had never been abroad, and it was a dream of mine, definitely going into college. Um, and, uh, And so fast forward, graduating from undergrad and uh, getting a a big girl job (laughs) uh, as a research assistant for a couple of years, Um, I just decided I wasn't ready to settle in to, you know, nine to five life and everything. And I really wanted to experience more, experience another culture, have experiences that I had not had, um, and, and, and be abroad. I didn't just want to travel. I wanted to be somewhere and live somewhere different and just and and you know experience a whole other kind of life and peace corps was that that outlet that the way in which i could do that at the time did you have an idea at the time of where you wanted to go what you were hoping to do and and were there any absolute no's for you (laughs) we were just talking about this um you know uh when when Uh, I applied for the Peace Corps. Um, You couldn't request to go anywhere specific. Um, uh, Not really. You could, you could on your application, um, let Peace Corps know your preferences and everything. And my only preference, I had been living in Indianapolis at the time, and I had just experienced uh, some 
some what I would call brutal winter winters. <laughs> it can be tough in Indianapolis. Yeah. That's, yeah that's... Um, so that was just uh, that was like my line in the snow, if you will. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I just put in the comments, uh, I just remember putting I, I really don't don't care where I go. I just don't want to be cold. <laughs> The chances of me making it the whole service will decline <laughs> if it is very cold. So Tonga, not cold. Not cold in the South Pacific. For the yeah, for those folks, what's what's around Tonga? Give us a sort of um, geographical yeah, picture. Yeah, so um, you know, think you know, think Fiji, Samoa, Samoa uh, um, you know. Uh, not like right on top of these places, but you know, you're heading that way. Um, when I got my when I got my packet my assignment packet and I opened it up and I saw Tonga I was like, or the kingdom of Tonga. Um, and I was like, what is this? Where is this? I thought I might be, I thought I might go to Fiji. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to find out Tom Dorgan, you went to Ukraine mm-hmm. a little bit earlier a few, than uh, your wife went to Tonga. What led you to sign up for Peace Corps? And uh, roughly how old were you? Uh, yeah, so I I did Peace Corps right after I graduated college or about a year after I graduated college. So I was 22, 23, around there. Uh, what led me to joining Peace Corps was when I was an uh, undergrad, um, I wanted to study abroad. Of course, I wasn't the best undergrad, so I waited a long time and I had limited opportunities for what I could do studying abroad. So I ended up doing my student teaching in Hungary. Uh, I'd never really been abroad like that, uh, and it was gone for about 10 weeks uh, with that experience. And I, I remember the first couple of days I was in Hungary uh, walking through the town I was doing the teaching in, and someone asked me if I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And my first thought was, they sent me to where Peace Corps volunteers go on a study abroad trip? Uh, <laughs> but it ended up being like an amazing experience for me. So when I graduated from college, I wanted to expand upon that. And similar to Shannon, I wanted to live somewhere else. I wanted to an ex- it really experience the culture like like people that live there do instead of kind of the way tourists do when they're, when they're visiting a place and really immerse myself. So the Peace Corps was a, uh, was a really good opportunity. I had a cousin that did the Peace Corps a couple of college professors at the time that had talked about it a lot. So it was kind of in my mind and just seemed like the next best fit for me at the time. When you heard other people talking about their experience in the Peace Corps, how now that you've done it yourself, how mm-hmm. different was it? Like, what did they say that stuck with you as... as... It, so it was, it was more just about the experiences that they had, like just just things that... that that, that shaped kind of their world outlook and things like that. Kind of like what Shannon was talking about before with the, the there was the Shannon before and the Shannon after. It was kind of similar for me too. Like it was a... a well, actually, that's something that we chatted about before we started. So let's, let's put that out there now and really dive into that. When we first spoke Shannon, we talked about the idea that there was a, a pre-Peace Corps Shannon and a very definite delineation of a post-Peace Corps Shannon because it changed your thinking that profoundly. So what what does that mean? How did it change your thinking? I think, um, I think for, for me anyway, um, there was just a lot of um, time to deconstruct. And I didn't even know that that's what I was, that that, that was, happening. <laughs> I, I at the at the time and during this 2 years you just feel 
challenges and you and and um, and sometimes isolation and sometimes um, you know because you might be the only person in your village that speaks English and your your language skills may still be developing and so you end up spending a lot of quality time with yourself that um, that I think we don't always get an opportunity to have. Um, it's a privilege, really, and it's, a, it's one of those scary ones that we often avoid even if we can do it um, for good reason. <laughs> because <laughs> what, what happens when you spend all that time with yourself? Oh, you start, you start to realize uh, – uh, you start to realize uh, – well, let's start with this. Maybe you realize some qualities that you have that you didn't have before, that you didn't know you had before. Maybe you're a little men- more mentally tough than what you thought you were going into this. Maybe you can poop outside and you won't. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my, my issue, but it seems to be, you know, one of the, one of the main things. My recruiter asked me if I, if, if I had any problems pooping outside. I grew up in rural <laughs> North Carolina, so I did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Mount Airy does have indoor plumbing. They do have in- indoor plumbing, but when you're in a pinch. Um, uh, but uh, so there's good there's good parts to that. You start to uncover things that you didn't know about yourself that are positive. But the hard part is uncovering and acknowledging the things about yourself that you're not so proud of. That you're not you're not really. Um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not that mentally tough in this area. Um, I do have. Was there a specific area that you realized that you were a little more fragile than you thought? Yeah, like not having control over certain situations. Like you, you have to let go of a, a certain amount of control in these situations and just roll with it. And I think I, and I think I've always been a pretty flexible person. But um, but I, I was a hell of a lot more flexible leaving the Peace Corps than I was than I was prior, um, and and just realizing that your way is not the best way, your you know just because you have a familiar uh, and and the familiar is not always the best thing for you, um, and, uh, and that's part of what they train you in the Peace Corps, right? This is not mm-hmm. about your way. Yeah. And you might show up in a situation and think, oh, well, this is how we do it. This is how it needs to happen. But you're not supposed to do that because it's about the host, the culture, the host country, the folks you're with. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a partnership. Yeah. You really, truly learn how what a partnership means. Yeah. Um, Tom Dorgan, you were talking about how it also changed you kind of profoundly, which is why you guys bonded over this. How, how, what did you learn about yourself? Well, for me, it was... My worldview just got drastically expanded. So I'm from a very small town in upstate New York. That's kind of my worldview. Small town, upstate New York, that's what I was used to. Also, I feel like I'm sort of one of the last generations of not growing up with constant internet and social media and all of that. So like, it was really even a lot smaller. So once I got to Ukraine, and it wasn't just, just the experience in Ukraine, but it was the other volunteers I was with. It was a wide variety. So I, I went over with a group of... Let's see, we started off with, I think, 45 people from the youngest being, I think, 20 to the oldest person being 55, 60, and just getting to know those people, too, and why they came and things like that and learning from them and their worldview and just everybody having different reasons for joining the Peace Corps. So it really just kind of expand just just what I thought of the world, what I thought of my place in the world, and the people that I interacted with as well. 
You said that there were times you felt really isolated. Oh, for sure. And then there was there was one day when somebody knocked on your door. Oh, yeah. A so, medical student who spoke English and said, Tom, there's a phone call for you. That, that was a that was a big deal for me. So I lived in a dorm for medical students, and um, I didn't know this at the, when I moved in there, that there was a big group of foreign students that were studying medicine in Ukraine. Uh, so I lived in a dorm room by myself. I didn't have a phone. There was a phone at the front of the dorm where if somebody called me, they had to be able to speak Ukrainian or Russian to tell the person, hey, I'd like to talk to the American guy that lives there. And then there had to be somebody walking by that the, the person that answered the phone could say, hey, go go uh, tell this guy there's a phone call for him. So one day I'm sitting in my room and I hear this knock on the door and it really couldn't have come at a better time. I, it was a really low pop, low spot for me um, just because like what Shannon said, it can be very isolating. And there was times where I, I didn't talk to anybody for days um, just because of, of just what I was doing or maybe I was off of work or things like that. And I didn't, my Russian skills or Ukrainian skills weren't that strong. So it was difficult. So anyways. What was your job? My job, I taught uh, English uh, as a second language. So I, I was working at uh, Sumy State University. I was in Sumy, Ukraine, which is in northeastern Ukraine, about uh, 20 miles from the Russian border. Um, so this day in particular, knock on the door. I go in to answer the door and there's this guy. Hey, you got a phone call. And I'm just like, where did you come from? You speak English. And it was this little Indian guy. His name was James. Uh, and he was studying medicine there. And sometimes, you know, you don't necessarily pick your friends. Your friends pick you. And me and this guy became pretty close friends because we're both foreigners in this country. We both spoke English. And, you know, he could actually speak Russian really well. So it was helpful for me to just be able to have somebody there that I could just bounce, like, ask him, hey, what, what's, what are they saying? What's this? What's going on there? Um, and that led into him introducing me to the other uh, foreign students there. So I ended up being really close friends with people from Cameroon, Nigeria, uh, Palestine, um, Jordan, um, Tanzania. And we all just kind of bonded about being foreign in this country. If you hadn't met those people and developed those relationships. It would have been a much different experience for me. It would have been a much more kind of isolating experience. Mm -hmm. And, and not, not because of the Ukrainians, but just because of my, I'm not really strong on picking up languages. That's one thing I learned about myself. Uh, I picked up enough where I could, I could do my shopping. I could buy plane ticket or uh, bus tickets, train tickets, things like that. I could, I could get around. Um, but having somebody that I could actually talk to. There was a time that you you said you got so lonely that you decided to take an eight-hour bus trip to oh. visit a friend, but because your Russian was so bad, it turned into a 12-hour bus I, I, it trip. It totally did. Uh, God, I love to read. So I had, a, I had an Arthur C. Clarke book. I'll never forget this. It was like 800 pages. So like I was good to go on, on entertainment. So I was able to finish the book. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was an eight hour, what I thought was going to be an eight hour bus ride, a 12 hour bus ride. And it was from my town in Sumy to a town called Kirovograd in central Ukraine. And the reason I was going there was to play softball. So the Ukrainian national baseball team, that's where they played from was in, uh, Kirovograd. So my friends that are volunteers there, got to know the baseball team and they would have an annual, they would play softball with the baseball team. And then they had a Peace Corps versus Ukrainian game. And uh, yeah, that was the whole reason to go was to play softball for the weekend. 
So, Shannon, we've said that the two of you bonded over the fact that your Peace Corps experience was profound for both of you in some similar ways in terms of, like, really delineating some of your values that drive you today. How did you meet, and what did you talk about when you started exploring this bond with Tom? We met through a mutual friend. I had moved to Savannah, Georgia, um, after my not long after my Peace Corps service, because um, uh, during that time, I discovered that I really actually do have a passion for storytelling and writing, and I wouldn't have gone to graduate school if it wasn't for my Peace Corps service. So I went to grad school in Savannah, and Tom happened to be working at the at the school, and uh, a mutual friend introduced us. Um, I think solely for the fact that we were both in the Peace Corps, and I was very skeptical. I was like, you know, we don't all like each other, right? <laughs> But I'm glad she did. It worked out. Um, I don't. What did we talk about? In those you you said to me, community is something that I think both of you actually said that in separate conversations. That that's a value. And Shannon, specifically, you talked about. And I, I'm probably changing your language around, so forgive me if I'm misinterpreting. But it sounded like you were saying it kind of turned you from being a self-focused person to being a more outward service-focused person. Absolutely. Is, is that fair? Yes, that's 100% fair. And that's one of those like foundational shifts that I think happened during that two years. Um, you know, I, I say I say it was life-changing. It's life-changing still because you just, you keep realizing new ways that this experience impacted you long-term. And, um, and I think that that foundational shift happened there where it's like, hmm, I, I actually am a little more self-serving than what I would like to be. And, uh, and, and that's, that's informed how I've you know, approached moving to new communities being and how I want to be a part of that community, how I want to help be an uplifting, uh, help in any way to be an uplifting point in that community. Um, versus just being concerned with what's happening with me. Tom, how would you articulate the way it's changed you? How does it affect you today, your Peace Corps service? So for me, it's similar to Shannon, that sense of community and have, like just sharing that bond and being a part of the community and, and, and everything. But just for, also like just appreciating what we have here. Like it, uh, um, I've got an email uh, chain going on with other members of my group. And someone posted in this email chain two days ago, uh, next year will be 25 years since we left. Uh, and it still, it doesn't feel that long, but there's still things like I just appreciate that we have here that, that you don't necessarily appreciate or even realize without having spent significant amount of time not being here in America. Uh, it can be little things. It could be anything. It could be, you know, being able just to go wash my clothes whenever I want to in a washing machine. Um, just the things we take for granted, having heat, having hot water, having... Private toilets. Yes. Oh, Your yes. awkward pooping story? Uh, so I've got a couple of them. Okay. Um, and I, we have about 10 seconds before we go to break. Okay. So the, first, the, the simplest one is I learned the hard way that it's you bring your own toilet paper. <laughs> so well said. Shannon Ray Gentry, Tom Dorgan... Thank you both for sharing your experience with us today. 
Absolutely. No problem. Thank, Thank you. you. Still ahead, Susan Prentice might have avoided Africa because of snakes and bugs, but my next guest wanted desperately to go there. We'll meet Lindsay McGrath and find out why. After this short break, stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Joining the Peace Corps as a volunteer is often life changing, but it is definitely not for everyone. Each year, the agency celebrates Peace Corps Week, usually around its anniversary of March 1st. In 2024, the theme is Optimism in Action. My next guest, Lindsay McGrath, wanted to go to Africa more than any other place in the world. While she'd had visions of joining the Peace Corps since her teenage years, it wasn't until she passed the half-century mark that she found her way to an office in Boston, sat down in, in front of someone who looked to be 12 years old, and... Signed up. Lindsay McGrath, welcome to Coastline. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I love the fact that you said half century. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have said to me that you are often the poster child for the older American joining Peace Corps. I think so. And we just spoke with two people who joined the Peace Corps when they were in their 20s. And it it changed the way they saw the world. It Mm. changed the way they thought. It changed what what their core values are and what drives them in the world today. Hmm. But that wasn't the case for you. You were into your 50s. Mm-hmm. And tell us why you decided at that point to sign up. Hmm. Um, I'd had a divorce. My children were grown. And I thought, what next? I think that's the, that's the thing. What next? I'd always thought about Peace Corps. I was um, working for a Jesuit theological seminary in Boston. One of the young men there had just come back from Peace Corps. And I thought, woo, here's a sign. So he told me about where he had signed up. And I decided to go. And yeah, it was wonderful. You're right. I believe I could be the poster child for the older adult. I think that you bring as an older adult a lifetime of how to communicate and that it's easier to do that with superiors um, and, and managers in your field Um, you don't always have to say yes because you think that by saying, could we think about doing this a different way, would be um, not kind. You're more grounded in who you are. Absolutely. And so you're more comfortable with yourself. 
So you're, but you said when you went to Africa, and we're going to get to the signing up process sure, and sure. all of that because okay. it's, it's pretty interesting. But you went to a small village in Namibia. I did. Describe uh, the village for us. Well, I like to say that I got to live National Geographic. I lived with the Himba. Uh, the women are still bare-breasted. They wear anklets of, of um, metal around their ankles. They put ochre on their skin. Um, they do not bathe. Um, they, or rather, I should put it this way, they bathe by walking over a, a tremendous amount of smoke. Um, so they are extremely clean, just not the clean that we understand. The men still wear a piece of leather around their waist, and then they put a piece of material over that, over that piece of leather. And so um, my village had um, thatched homes, um, little tiny concrete houses. Um, they are Was a, there running water? Or yes, there was running water. One did not drink it. Um, so uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful uh, gentleman who would go every two weeks and pick up huge um, uh, plastic cartons of water and bring it to us so that we could uh, wash or we could throw water down the john or we could, you know, wash hair or wash dishes. So, yes. What was your job there? Um I was working for the educational department, but I actually was considered health-related. I have a background in HIV-AIDS, and so that's how I came to be in Peace Corps, actually. Which is a, it's a pretty unique set of experiences that you brought to the table. And when you went to that office in Boston mm -hmm. to finally sign up mm -hmm. and sat in front of somebody who looked like a child to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You said he went through a list of skills asking, do you have oh, gosh, this experience? Yes. Do you have that? Yeah. There had to have been around 15. And I and I kept looking at him and saying, nope, no, no, that doesn't work. No, got no background in that. And I thought, there's nothing that I bring. There's nothing that I bring. And I was saddened as the list went on. And at the end, he looked at me and he said, these are his exact words. I don't suppose you have any background whatsoever in any way in HIV AIDS. And I thought my heart and my head went bingo. Yep. Why did you have experience there? What had you been doing? Um, about how, how long before? Maybe about seven or eight years before, I had been a chaplain at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. And it was, um, oh, no, it was longer than that then, now that I'm looking at dates. So because it was in the late 80s, um, mid to late 80s. And um, yes, it was before cocktails. It was when... Um, Drug cocktails to yeah, treat HIV. Yeah. yeah, and it was when everybody died, and I was a chaplain then. In a hospital. Yes. And so what did that mean? What what did you bring from that experience as a chaplain in a hospital to this small village in Namibia? 
Well, actually, what's interesting about it was that I actually became a teacher. Essentially, I taught sex ed, and I had 19 Bush schools, and so I went not just to in in my village of Opuo, I also went to 19 schools, and I essentially taught sex education. So the idea was this is how it works? Yes. This is how you get it. This is how you don't. Um, and I, mm, one needs to understand also that the power in villages came from witch doctors. Um, that is their, their um, usage of the, those words, not mine. Um, incredibly powerful. And to be HIV to the witch doctor was essentially you're sick, someone has witched you. So give me um, property, things, money, and I will unwitch you. If you don't get well, it's not because of me. I've done everything I can do. But the fact is, is that the witching was either too powerful or someone else has rewitched you. So it was this horrific cycle and for me a very difficult line to walk. You do not wish to make an enemy of the witch doctor. But you need to help people understand that he was not correct. When you were teaching the people in the village about how you actually contract HIV AIDS yes. and how to protect yourself, yes, did you see a resistance to that? How, because so much of Peace Corps, so much of the training seems to be about respect the culture into which you are entering. Mm. You, mm -hmm. you don't turn into the American who goes in and says, sure. this is how it is, this is what. Don't I've got you know? all the answers. Right. Mm -hmm. So yes. how did you walk that line in this case? Again, I think being older is, um, was a plus. Um, I never denigrated the witch doctor. Instead, I took a more, what I thought was a more positive way to say, I understand what he is saying. People are dying. We have funerals every single weekend. We could try this, what I am saying. Let's see if that, in the two years that I am here, makes a difference. If it does, you have made a choice to hear him and to perhaps listen to me. And not just me. There were other volunteers there, one from Norway, one from Britain. And so... Um, we were just giving another option. You said there was a lot of death in the village. Yes. Because this mm -hmm. is so HIV AIDS just mm -hmm. everywhere. And you said that you saw plenty of volunteers come in and then just leave early. They couldn't take it. Like, And you've said to me that Peace Corps service is not for everyone. Oh, heavens. <laughs> no. And we could probably laugh about a lot a lot of that. Um, it isn't. It isn't. 
um, you are taken out of most things that you readily understand, things that are readily available. Um, uh, and, and remember, when I was there, our cell phones did not necessarily work with, our, with my schools. And so, um, and I didn't have a computer until weeks after I was there. So, you know, there's this a This was 2004 to 2006. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You, you, um, I think the, the thing that, uh, that I always thought was, you know, you just really have to think outside of the box. And again, easier when you're 54. And you lived in, I mean, you didn't have the creature comforts because this was a, a small village that you said they bathed over smoke. Mm-hmm. And y- you had, uh, well, tell us your awkward pooping story since we're talking about <laughs> creature comforts. <laughs> okay. Well, wow. Um, what I would say is this, is that you learn very, very quickly um, to take toilet paper every single place you went. You never had an idea of what the plumbing or non-plumbing situation was going to be. And certainly if I was living very, very far away, very far away from, from um, a, a city type or a town, um, Namibia has changed a great deal. Uh, n- not just Namibia, but Apuo has changed a great deal since I've been there. But um, <laughs> yeah, if you were in a combe, which is a taxi, taking six, seven, eight people crammed together, you would know that every single person had toilet paper with them because we would stop. Everybody would run into the fields. Um, No privacy whatsoever. No privacy. So you get used to that. Yes. And so there are a lot of things that would be daunting for someone raised in Western culture. Sure. Mm -hmm. Including as we've said before, all of the death that you had to deal with. Why mm. do you think that you were able to handle it when it would have been such an, a heavy, naturally, a heavy emotional and psychological burden for people? You know, I think that's a really, really good question. And I think for me, for me, um, I think that all of us have been given gifts uh, my list of li- of gifts that I have not been given is pretty legion, <laughs> but when I was uh, when I was doing my chaplaincy, I found out in my late thirties and early forties that I am comfortable with the sick and the dying, and so I got to take those feelings with me to Africa. You told me that when you came home after your service had ended, mm-hmm. it was an adjustment of sorts. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about that. What did you have to readjust to? I think that more than anything, the plenty, the absolute plenty. Um, I remember walking into a public market the first time I had, I had come home and and virtually stood there at the entrance, and I could feel the tears coming. There was so much food. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Um, and I think that was a, that was a huge thing. Um, certainly, certainly plumbing, certainly um, IT um, was very different than what I had in my village. 
Um, and when the Peace Corps asked you after your service if you felt like you'd made a dent in the HIV-AIDS oh, yes. issue there, <laughs> that's what you did. You laughed. I did. I, I did. You I, said your I contribution laughed. was something else. It was being an American abroad? Yes. Why was that important? <clears throat> I, I hope that this is all right to say. Uh, politics is not patriotism. Patriotism is not politics. And when I was asked, when I first got home, I was being interviewed, and I think that the young man who was interviewing me assumed I would talk about HIV being the most important thing for me being abroad. And I said, no, the most important thing for my being abroad was being an American. We did have television. There were not very many of them, but there was television. And, um, and, and there was not a lot of America on television, but there was just enough for everyone that I knew in Namibia to have an idea of what America was. And I thought, uh, take a look at me. I am an American, and I'm proud. And that is this edition of Coastline. Lindsay McGrath, thank you so much thank for being you, with Rachel. us today. And I, this is this is uh, ironic, interesting. After you were here for the very first broadcast of Coastline in 2014, answering the phones as an HQR volunteer. I was. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> thank also you. to Shannon Ray Gentry, Tom Dorgan, and Susan Prentice. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.